0: Mm-hmm. Welcome to the ObjectSharp podcast. This is the third in our series. Uh, ObjectSharp is uh, just shameless plug. We're a, uh, a systems integrator located here in Toronto uh, and helping customers around the world with their, their big projects. Um, we also offer uh, seminars um, that are in person every two weeks uh, at our office. And today, actually, we have uh, Dave Judd with us. And Dave is just hot off the circuit, basically, in delivering a seminar um, around serverless. Um, And when we get into this, the first question I'm going to have for you, Dave, after we do introductions is, we just had an amazing podcast session all around microservices and orchestration. And I tell you, the most frequent question coming back was, So when do I use things like Kubernetes and orchestration? And when would I use things like serverless or PaaS, as it's called in the industry? Sure. So
1: we can cover that. Yep.
0: That is awesome. And with me as well, we have Nick. So Nick and uh, myself, Jeff, are uh, hosts of this podcast series and keep giving us the feedback and we'll keep delivering great sessions. And once again, this podcast is set to be around 30 minutes. Um, we're going to cover a technology area, and then we're basically getting input from our consultants that are in the field to helping customers implement these technologies to give a real-world feedback on where this is helping, how this is helping drive the business forward, and also any gotchas or any insights that we have on implementing of these technologies, because a lot of these things are relatively new. So that's our goal in 30 minutes to basically do that. Uh, and the focus of this session is all around serverless. If you want more information on ObjectSharp, we are up on Twitter, we're up on LinkedIn. Anything else to add, Nick, there?
2: Yep, we're, we're on all the things. Uh, we're on Twitter at ObjectSharp, and uh, we're definitely on LinkedIn, and we're also on the World Wide Web at ObjectSharp.com. So um, the seminars that you were just mentioning, uh, we have an events page where people can learn more about those talks that we give.
1: and. Yeah, maybe without further ado, we'll, we'll yeah, so, get into the show.
0: Dave, you want to do a quick introduction of yourself?
1: Sure. Yeah, my name's is uh, David Judd, and I'm a principal consultant at ObjectSharp. I've been with them for over four years now, uh, and currently lead up the application development and cloud-first development wing at ObjectSharp.
0: Awesome. Okay, so let's hit it up with the first question, then I want to get into that whole Kubernetes versus serverless. So let's start off high level, right? Yeah. What is serverless?
1: Okay, so... I guess the classic definition of serverless is being able to write code, then deploy it out to the cloud, and then it's done. It's up there. You're not worrying about servers, hence the word serverless. Ah, okay, Yeah. Uh, There still are servers (laughs) running your code. It's not just magically (laughs) running. um, But you are not thinking about servers. They're completely abstracted away. Okay,
0: Yeah. So – Given the podcast that we had last, right, and we're talking about Kubernetes, right, and we're talking about, you know, the orchestration and and how it can scale up and scale down and do all this other stuff, right? Just compare and contrast that, like, of, you know, the Kubernetes approach, if we want to call it to orchestration, stuff like that, and serverless. um, And why would a business go for one over the other. I really want to hit that up at the beginning sure. because it seems, at least in my mind, and I'm not nearly as savvy as you are in the technology, that they are competing approaches, right, to solving problems for organizations.
1: Yeah, so they are sort of competing approaches. I'd say um, Kubernetes gives you probably the ultimate control and flexibility, right, because you are defining the containers and then you are defining how those containers are going to work together, hence the orchestration. Uh, with serverless, maybe you don't want to even think about containers or orchestration or anything like that so what you can do is you can you know go to azure and you can say i want to do something serverless and you literally just deploy your code and have it run so you're not thinking about servers in both cases but with serverless again you're you're sort of abstracted above that and you're just writing your code pushing it there letting it run but the cloud provider so whether you're using aws you know google or Uh, Microsoft, they are deciding how to run that code, right? So, you know, they are patching the servers underneath the hood. They're figuring out the scale points, when to scale, when not to scale, things like that. So um, you do, you know, it's easier to get up and running, but it might not do exactly what you need it to do under the hood. And that's where Kubernetes comes in. So that's kind of you know, maybe you want to be running on this particular version of an OS with these things installed exactly that way. That's when you might go Kubernetes.
0: Okay. So it really comes down to, you know, you've got to look at the application and we help a lot of companies with that. You've got to understand the needs of the business, right? Both from a a security standpoint, a control standpoint, and maybe there's even a bit of a trust thing, right? As they're getting into using cloud technologies and stuff like that, uh, they just want to see a bit more
1: underneath the hoods of how things are working. Yeah, and, and maybe um, they're running some very specific workloads like that are very I.O. intensive or, um, I don't know, something that's not traditional, right? And so they need more control over the tech that's running that, um, what I would say with serverless though, it's great for those, okay, I got a good idea. I want to write a little bit of code. I want to maybe add a button to this thing and not affect the rest of my you know, application and test out just small pieces of code and get it up and running in the cloud without having to worry about anything, right? And that's kind of the the beauty of serverless. Um, But yeah, maybe we'll take a quick step back and I can cover some of what serverless is. Awesome. And Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the key differentiators and then yeah, we can keep comparing it back to Kubernetes. Perfect. Okay, so I've mentioned it before, you don't want to think about servers anymore. No one wants to, you know, I want to build an app. I don't want to think about, okay, well, I got to go out and I got to buy this from Dell and then I got to put this operating system on, right? And you want to just kind of forget about all of that. you know, write your code, push it, run it.
2: Shane it. Shane had a hilarious analogy to fast food, I think, in our previous episode <laughs> where he was like, he's like, you can think of, you know, like, like serverless. It's it's kind of like calling McDonald's like kitchenless, right? Like you don't want to think about the kitchen and the that's fryer right. and all the stuff that goes into like making
1: the burger and the fries. You just want the burger and the fries. Right. No, yeah. that's exactly it. I And I think like what's neat about serverless, it's kind of got to a point now where, um, like everyone's doing it. So the three yeah. big cloud vendors, they all have exactly the same marketing around serverless, right? And you keep hearing the same points over and over. Write your code, push it. You can write your code in pretty much any language you want, right? Yeah. JavaScript and C Sharp are usually the two main ones, but a lot of them support Java and Python, right? Okay. So yeah. you don't have to worry about that. You're writing the code what you're familiar, you're pushing it, it runs. Okay. Then when it's running, you're only paying when it is actually running. Right? Oh, okay. So it's kind of like a utility in that sense. So if you write something and only one person hits your website, you don't have to worry about all these big bills. You're not locked in monthly. It's usually or typically consumption-based pricing, right? So this is a bit different than Kubernetes then, right? Because Kubernetes, yeah. you still have the OS
0: underneath the covers. You still have um, the orchestration. You're still running something all the time to do Correct. that. But you're saying with serverless basically until something triggers –
1: that piece of code to run—that's right. It's just sort of sitting there idle. It's sitting there idle, and you're not paying for it. Wow. Okay. So that—that—that's one of the big differences too, right? Um, and then let's say a million people start hitting your site all the time, right? And you're—you know—you don't have to really sweat and panic and worry about the scale. So it's going to auto scale for you. Um, you mean there's certain components you might have to configure about how you want it to auto scale, but mm-hmm. for the most part, yeah, that that worry is taken away from you as well, right? So it it's great for dev tests because you can just be playing around and you're not getting a large bill, and then when you're in production and a whole bunch of people start using and you're you know widely successful, um, it just scales out, right? So, yeah, that's another huge thing. And then with that scale out, you kind of get this high availability twist too, because it's always running at least two of these things. So, you know, out of the box, your thing is highly available, right? And with some of the newer serverless tech, it's even in multiple regions, multiple data centers at the same time too. So, we're talking about sort of a global, highly available, you know, Uh, network that you just write a little bit of code, click push, it's out there, and now your app's all around the world. So that's kind of the, the promise of serverless. Wow. So, you know, that's,
0: it's pretty amazing when you watch the cloud journey going from IaaS and containers and stuff, which Kubernetes can play a part in, right, and getting to the sort of, I'll call it the PaaS type services. That's right. And this seems almost even that further sort of extension of, you know, if you want to look at it like microservices, because you're talking about small bits of code still, yep. but not thinking about the container in which it's running and you have to
1: scale up and scale down. Yeah, you're not thinking about any of that. You're back to just being a developer. You know, it's kind of like in Visual Studio, click the F5 and everything happens what well, really it's building, you know, it's doing this, creating your assemblies. You don't, yeah, you don't think about that anymore. You click a button, it's there, it's running in the cloud, right? So this has to be a pretty big change then for how organizations think then about
0: architecture and think about applications because this is not the typical pattern that, that they went through in trying to solve a problem.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, so I would say we can touch a little bit about microservices and this is kind of even... A step or an evolution beyond microservices. So if you think of a microservice, it might be doing, you know, one, two, three, four things kind of in a service. And I would say a microservice could be made up of functions, right? Functions yeah. are these building blocks of serverless, right? So now we're kind of building and deploying out even smaller things, right? The, they do call them functions. And yeah, your microservices are now made up of these independent functions which can all scale independently of each other.
2: Like nanoservices. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I wonder what it would be next.
1: Yeah. Uh. Right. So I mean some people call it instead of functions, it could have been nanoservices, right? Like it's even yeah. it's even smaller, right? Yeah. Um, And kind of a neat way to think about it too is, yeah, you don't have this traditional monolithic application. Mind you, you can use serverless with monoliths kind of in parallel, I'll touch on that in a bit. But let's say, again, you just want to add a button or a piece of functionality into an existing app. And let's say your front end is already a spa, right? A single page app. Mm -hmm. So now instead of making an API callback into the monolith, well, you can just make an API call out to this function you add this little bit of capability to your website or to your web application or to your mobile app, you try it out and you're not really paying for it, right? So it lets you do these quick kind of experiments and kind of figure out what you're doing and that's, you know, that's one of the things I really like about this. That's serverless. really neat
0: because like from a business standpoint, you know, we hear from clients all the time that, you know, it's a challenge with monolith applications, right, for yep. the release cycle. When they think they're fixing or adding a new feature, if they don't really have solid regression testing and everything else, it could break a bunch of other things, that's right? So to do something simple to the business, what the business thinks should be relatively quick could actually take weeks and months and stuff like that because of – all the testing and the yeah. process to sort of release that. And you're saying with this, you could actually almost bolt on, call it certain capabilities and extensions yeah. without um jeopardizing right? the, the, the monolith as it was, yeah. right? So that's still happily running. And then you can start extending it as you think about re-architecting your application going forward.
2: Yeah. Sort of exactly like, right. like what, what happens in code and like you know, keeping your code dry and always like trying to reduce things down to like small or smaller functions or whatever is kind of like being mirrored on the actual like physical infrastructure level yeah Um, and and i I imagine that's great for teams too because at some level it's like you know uh probably everyone's been on a team where someone's written a very giant function (laughs) or method or service or whatever and when that guy leaves the team no one else (laughs) knows how to deal with it (laughs) and similarly you know with like um, apps even even apps that have like microservices right like you've got um services which are smaller than Monoliths, but they're still like quite large. And if you yeah. have engineers moving around teams, uh, you know, that can become a problem to sort of maintain those services over time. So the smaller and smaller they get, it's almost like the easier and easier it is to actually support an application over its lifecycle.
1: Yeah. So there's pros and cons. Cool. We'll get into some of the, the cons of that too, because you kind of nailed it. You've broken down these things into a bunch of small parts, but now you do need to manage the small parts and figure right. out which small part does what, right? But Um, Yeah, that's the idea. And I think uh, with serverless, um, another neat thing about it around the architecture too is that you're modeling your systems um, a lot more closely to how actually business requirements are like workflows. That's, you know, they're very event-driven, right? So RBAs like really like, you know, writing stories around this because it's like when this thing happens, write this piece of code that does this and then do that, right? And when you're writing... Um, functions, you know, again, whether it's Azure or Lambdas, things like that, um, you're you're literally writing your code like that. So I have this trigger, which could be an HTTP request coming in or a webhook being called. I want to do this thing, and I need this piece of data. And you're just stitching together your application as a series of events reacting to, you know, so one thing happens, and then that might trigger another thing, and that might trigger another thing, right? So um, it's very event-driven, reactive-based programming, and in Azure, there's sort of a core capability. Um, if we break it down, serverless, you can think about it like this. you got functions. Functions is your compute. That's the thing that spins up and actually does something with the code, right? And then you have event grid, right? Event grid is what's pushing out the events. When a blob is written into storage, okay. I want to do this, right? When a VM spins up, I want to do that. So. Um, Azure kind of took a step back and said, you know what? We have tons of events that are happening all the time. We, we need like a global, kind of think of it as a global service bus, okay. okay? And functions tap into those and react to those events happening. Um, and then you as a developer, you can be producing events which then get you know, consumed by your code or maybe a third party's code. So you could actually be a supplier of events out in the world. Uh, You know, maybe you're a credit card transaction company and you want to, say, produce an event every time this type of transaction happens. Well, you could do that and publish it out. And You know, one thing kind of unique too to Azure's event grid is they've recently adopted the cloud event schema. So this is sort of the open source... um, global event schema, so okay. this is what is allowing us as Object Sharp say, produce events that then another vendor can consume, right? Okay. It's not proprietary, which is kind of cool. They're, yep. they're one of the first people to jump on and support that. So yeah, so we've talked about compute, then there's a bunch of events and triggers, right? So you need something to do that, and then there's obviously data, right? There's always data, and I'd say in Azure, they have a pretty good story around the data, which is Cosmos DB, which, you know, we did a whole podcast on. Um, but yeah, Podca- uh, sorry, Cosmos scales you know quite well with the serverless story because um, as your functions are growing and scaling, Cosmos can actually match that capability in terms of reads and writes. And as your functions kind of grow around the world, well, Cosmos can replicate its data around the world. And then I guess the third thing around it is. It's also very reactive. So what I mean by that is as things are written into Cosmos, you can write functions that say, okay, when this type of document is written, I want to do that. So they've kind of done a nice job of tying everything together, right? And that's the – I guess the – Azure serverless story. Okay. Yep. And
2: so just nice.
0: to dig in a yep. bit
1: deeper on one question there. So like sure. when I think about functions
0: and you talk about, you know, business things, you know, there's a trigger and something goes off. Yep. Now in business, sometimes it's a bit more complex and it's not just a, a sequence of events, if you want to call it, yep. but it's a bit
1: more difficult in orchestration and stuff like that. Yeah. Can this deal with that? Yeah. So um, all the cloud vendors, again, have a way of doing it. Um, I think in AWS, they call them step functions. And in uh, Azure, we call them durable functions, right? And Mm -hmm. so that's what gives you sort of the more complex orchestration. Um, So an orchestrator, right, inside the function landscape is basically coordinating these different functions, right? Kind of like what Kubernetes is doing with all of the containers. This is more at the application level though. So this would let you do things where you want to run this activity and then based on the response of that activity, maybe you want to do this or that. So... Um, What I mean by that is because there's no state in functions, they're always running. They're just running code. You do need something to maintain state. That's the orchestrator's job, Okay. Okay? So yes, they have thought about that because you can't just be completely stateless all the time. (laughs) And you don't want to be snapping state all over the place. You don't really want to think about that as a developer. So the orchestrator does that for you, right? Um, and it's actually pretty elegant. You don't even realize that it's doing it. It just, as an output comes from one, it's writing it somewhere, and then it feeds that in as the input into your next function. Um, It also lets you do neat things like what I'd call fan out. So like, let's say you have, I don't know, a thousand blobs that you need to do something with, or a thousand images stored in your container um instead of processing them one at a time you can actually spin up an orchestrator say okay let's iterate through these and then it'll spin up a thousand functions to do all of those things in parallel cuz let's just say that stuff's not independent or it's not dependent on each other can go out do all the things come back and say yeah we're done right, right. so yeah so fan like- in fan out You know, when I was learning programming way back, we'd write
0: a application and certain parts of the application obviously would be used more than others. And what you're saying in this case is, as opposed to spinning up that application multiple times and load balancers and stuff running, is we're really breaking it down to the unit of work and understanding what needs to be done and with what frequency and with these fanout models and everything else and in sort of functions is we can basically just scale those pieces that we need, yeah. right? For that small bit of code, yeah. as opposed to scaling out the application and having it basically running multiple times where the whole application didn't really need to run in order to solve that business problem. Right, exactly.
1: So you, you have a little bit of code, the orchestrator yeah. didn't really have to do much. And you're right. You're just doing this one thing, but you need to do that one thing, let's say a million times. So, yeah, the fan out pattern allows you to do that. It says, okay, let's go get the data. That's my input, right? And we're going to iterate through that data, do that thing, the thousand, the million times, and you don't really worry about the scale out on that side. It'll, it'll handle that, right? So, yeah, exactly. You're not scaling out entire applications. You're scaling out the bits that need to be scaled out. Which is very cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's super cool. It's like it, you're getting like in increasingly more discreet about about the particular components of your app that like might be successful or important or whatever, and you can kind of like discreetly scale that stuff out and manage your costs and spend appropriately, I guess, around like you know the aspects of your app that are that are important. Right. You can also probably start to see uh, where maybe you've got like cost overruns on on certain features that like you can you can change how that works or whatever to actually make it uh, more performant for you from like a budget perspective too.
1: Yeah. It, it's it's uh, granular tweaking. Gives granular, you granular tweaking. Yeah. And yeah. and again because of the like that. we should coin that phrase. <laughs> because of the consumption plan again, you're not really thinking through well what if it didn't scale out that way? What if the performance yeah. characteristics are more like this, right? Yeah. Well, you can kind of learn and figure out the best way to, you know, break up or re-architect that function to to I guess make use of the scan uh, or sorry, the fan out and the scale out things like that. So, have you experienced anything, because you've done a lot with this, right,
0: both in Greenfield as well as sort of Brownfield applications and stuff like that. Um, and I know in the early days there was always, you know, a bit of fear around sort of serverless or, 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 you know, Azure Functions, stuff like that for, I'll call it the startup and performance of it. Like, you know, that it was maybe good for certain applications and didn't need to be as timely in what they were doing. Right. But maybe for, I'll call it more real-time
1: banking applications, whatever else, you might not want to use it. Has that changed much? Yeah, I think that's you know, one of the areas the tech has gotten, you know, a lot better. So there used to be like this ten to twenty second warm-up time. So here okay. we are complaining about ten seconds. <laughs> right? Um but now, yeah, I mean the new function runtime and I, I know Azure's best, so I'll go back to that one. Their their function runtime can spin up in, you know, milliseconds now. Wow. Um A lot of times they'll even have your stuff on hot standby, standby, right? So as you kind of do your push out, that first couple of nodes is already spun up for you. And what it's doing is it's kind of monitoring a bunch of things around those nodes. And once memory gets too high or CPU gets too high or there's too many waiting requests, it's automatically spinning up and warming those guys up in the background. So... Um, yeah, it's not perfect yet, but it's much, much faster than waiting for a container to spin up, yep. right? So um, I'd say really the only negative of this approach is if you do need a little bit more fine-grained control or you're still paranoid about cloud lock-in,
2: okay. the, v- the vendor
1: lock-in, vendor yeah. lock-in, yeah. right? But here's the interesting thing. If you don't think about all the you know, surrounding stuff, I can write a function in JavaScript, run it in Azure all of Lambda is written in JavaScript. I can literally copy that code, paste it over, and it's going to run. Wow. Yeah, like there's no difference from the coding perspective. So I don't really know if I'm buying into this whole vendor lock-in thing anymore because your code will run. Um, It's all, you know, NPM-based. So if your little code needs this package, it's going to go get that package. So that's part of that spin-up time. It's got to, you know, create a node that has the things that it needs. Then it's just running that code, right? And then it goes away. So...
2: Well, it sounds like you were mentioning before kind of like the, the paradigms are converging across like the, the entire like, yeah. set of clouds, if you yeah. will. So so basically like uh, learning and thinking about architecture in a serverless way could be helpful or applicable to you in any cloud environment, really. Correct, yeah. Yeah. And it does need a bit the, the point about uh, JavaScript. Obviously my ears uh, <laughs> perk up when people yeah. talk about JavaScript. Um, but yeah, so like um, basically... You could write your functions in any language, right? Like you could well, have on your team. Not any,
1: but yes. Okay, but like yeah. if
2: we were to take, say, Azure Functions for example, yep. like if we, if you had a team, uh, you could feasibly have like a developer who's very familiar with C sharp uh, writing a number of your functions. Um, but you could also potentially have a developer who's you know maybe JavaScript does like a bit of front end, but also is very familiar with Node writing kind of also functions in, in JavaScript, and yeah. that stuff can all kind of support the same application?
1: Yeah, exactly. So let's go back to one of those workflows, right? The orchestrator spins up. It's just thinking about functions. So yeah, yeah your C-sharp guy could be doing something that then feeds a uh, input into your JavaScript function. So hmm. um yeah, they don't know about that. They don't know, like the runtime doesn't know what language it was written in and they all just work together.
2: Right, yeah. right. But for people who like lead teams, like that's that's helpful because, you know, they could potentially leverage some people. The who skills. Ever, yeah. yeah, the, the skills of, of resources, like say if you're a JavaScript developer, right, you can start like maybe leveraging those people to assist on, on some of the, the back end stuff, obviously, yeah. you know, yeah. like, with guardrails, but yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, back to the, I guess the, the things that you'll notice as you're jumping around from cloud to cloud. So they all have the same thing. Right. Like so um, in AWS, there is sort of an event grid. They don't call it event grid. Yep. Right. But so you have to learn kind of those nuances. So how do I do my input bindings? Like yep. how do I get access into an S3 bucket versus Azure storage? So um, you do need to think through the ins and the outs. But the model and the concepts are very similar. Yep. Right. And uh, even Google's cloud, like they've wrapped up all of this stuff and they actually have a higher level product called uh, Firebase, right, and it does. It's kind of like the back end of a service. There, okay. uh, it's, it's a, sort of like their Cosmos, I guess. Right. Well, it's it's yeah, it's kind of like that, but they've layered functions in on it so it can react. They've layered yeah. in you know eventing and yeah. things like that. So it's this complete serverless offering, yeah. and yeah, so Google has that. So they're as well. trying to
0: differentiate, but really underneath the covers, a lot of it is very similar on an architectural pattern standpoint. That's right, right? It, 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 you don't have that lock in like you you know like people might perceive.
1: Yeah, it's it's conceptually the same. You might have to tweak your code, obviously, to do it in that yep. particular, um, you know, vendor's way of doing it. Um, so, so can I ask yep. a
2: quick question? Um, uh, if if you were talking a bit about we were talking about greenfield and brownfield, uh, yeah, but sure. um, if I'm a company, for example, that just has like this ridiculously old monolithic application, and you know, I eh, you you talk about these cool technologies but i'm sitting here and i'm saying well i need i need to like fix things now or improve or advance the application now uh so listen i i don't really that's great that you're talking about serverless but that's not for us because we have to continue building out in our monolith is right. that is that actually true is that is that is that the case or is it the case that like if i've got a monolithic app i could can just like sort of augment it with you know additional bits of code and stuff that I might be writing in a sort of nano services kind of way,
1: right? So I guess it depends what you are trying to accomplish with yeah. that augment or that change, but yeah. many monoliths have ways to trigger things, um, you know, based on something happening. So if we think of a CRM, right, or even Salesforce, when a new prospect was entered in, yeah. you know, maybe it can call a webhook. So yeah. Any monolith that can, you know, make a, a webhook call is a really good candidate to then augment an add-on capability, right? So when this thing happens, it's going to fire this webhook. So now instead of, you know, having to worry about infrastructure and everything, what you can do is say, okay, that's our first function. That's what we're going to yep. do. So when prospect A got entered into, you know, our CRM, we want to, I don't know, notify salesperson X on Slack, something like that, right? So that little bit of code, that little bit of wiring, maybe that's what you do in your application, right? Uh, And yeah, so you're sort of adding little bits of capability without touching the monolith, right? So
0: let's switch streams. Let's talk about in the real
1: world because you've been working on
0: this stuff for a number of years, right? Probably since the beginning of it. Can you talk a bit about some of the the client examples in which you're working, right? And I know you've worked both Greenfield as well as sort of Brownfield applications, but can you be specific on talking about, you know, when you looked at you know a client uh, X and you looked at their their business problem that they were trying to solve, why this was the right thing and, and what you sort of you know thought about as you were sort of approaching how to solve that problem.
1: Right. So I kind of touch it. I have a good sort of success story that touches Perfect. on both of those things. So it's it's going to be a brownfield application, okay. and um, the primary driver for this business. So it's a financial services company, and um, they deliver, let's say, document sets to all the banks around North America. Now, in Canada, we only have six banks, but in the states, there's you know thousands hundreds. of banks, <laughs> and every state's got different policies around how mortgage applications, the actual documentation around it's got to be produced. Okay. So this particular client had unique software that could, you know, based on where the state is and who's applying for the mortgage, produce the right doc set. Um, But for this client, you know, every time there was changes, they had to go out to all the banks and install patches and it was just, you know, getting to be a pain. But they didn't want to rewrite the core algorithms on how all of that stuff was generated. What's neat about it is that um, with functions and with serverless, right, it's – these ones happen to be running on Windows. You can run your functions on Linux or Windows. You don't really need to think about that. But you can go in and you can select, I want this to run on Windows. Well, because it can run on Windows, you can actually take existing DLLs that you've been, you know, okay. you've written, say, 10 years old or 20 years old. And you can put them in as part of your function package as sort of a dependency. And then you can wrap those to now be called or invoked via one of these triggers that we've been talking about. So. Okay. Um, this client um, you know, produced this DLL for us and we, we did a little bit of tweaking to it, but we didn't have to rewrite the code. We just packaged it up and we created a couple of different ways to trigger it, right? So um, an HTTP call would come in. It would trigger this function. It's running all the old business logic that it yeah. had to do, right? And the output was just you know, bytes, which represents the documents. Well, we took that output and we shoved it into blob storage <laughs> and then we delivered wow. back a URL so that they could then download that document, right? So now they're not really paying for anything until a bank actually makes a request to make the documentation. So yeah, the client um, got a whole bunch of wins. One, they were able to repurpose out their existing app, which everyone loves, right? Like they like the output of it. Um, They didn't have to rewrite any of that business logic. So they took their app. They just wrapped it up and just re-envisioned how they're going to now sell and market this out to the bank. So now they have a a pay-per-click model, right? So so basically what you're saying is
0: they were able to leverage all the investments they've made from a technology standpoint. We had to repackage it a bit and, Mm -hmm. and help them on that. But then all of a sudden they're switching to a model that really is as simple as when a request comes in. Yeah. They know how much it's going to cost because of what it runs and therefore they can figure out the chargeback model whereas before they were dealing with a whole system of you know, how do I get updates out there and what is the, the field tech to sort of install this and are they on the right versions and everything else. So they simplified their whole – I'll call it regulatory compliance and keeping up to date on whatever they had to do by state um, – And then they basically from a business standpoint have a very clean model of how much does it cost and how much do we charge and how much do we make. Yeah, that's right. And that cost model doesn't
1: change if it's a million transactions or if it's zero, it's a zero cost. And the neat thing too is that they started running on a consumption-based plan and the first like 400,000 requests are free. So, you know,
0: <laughs> so it's even better profitability even better for, for them, them, right? They
1: don't have to tell <laughs> the <laughs> banks that or the clients that, but yeah, Shh,
2: banks right. don't listen to this. Um, that's, that's like, uh, do you, have, have you guys ever seen the show and, and forgive the terminology? I didn't invent the name of the show, but if you've ever seen the show, I think it was an MTV show, pimp my ride. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so you <laughs> like, you like, you like pimp their ride. Basically <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you took like, what was their sort of like, you know, Toyota from 1980s and you, you souped it up and, and now it's kind of running in a modern, uh, modern engine. Yeah, that's right.
1: But, it's, it's like they're, you know, now we can say, oh, we have a software as a service. We can offer a, a you know, basically a pay per click type model, or you can say you get all you can eat for the course of the year for this much. And because like you said, they knew what the calculated costs yeah. were. They knew they weren't going to lose any money doing it. So it's yeah, that was an amazing a, example yeah. because most people, when they look at newer technologies as Nick and I have figured out, they're always going to
0: say, that's awesome, but it's not going to work in my shop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's a great example that in that circumstance, right, that they could basically take advantage of these newer capabilities, which introduce a lot of business benefits for them, yeah. right, by applying that. And equally so, if we're born in the cloud, new applications, um, you know, my guess is if I ask you is, you know, why would you ever think the old way of sort of architecting things? If it's truly a business process thing, you probably start with this, you know, with serverless As your first architectural pattern that you go after.
2: Well, uh, I want to test that theory though. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Here's the reality check. (laughs) Yes, Dave, it's time for the reality check. Um, Yeah, I mean, like it. This all sounds so great, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sold. Yeah. Well. Yeah, Uh, but give us give us uh, some of your your feedback or learnings that you you found kind of encountering and doing stuff with serverless like like i'm sure it is great but i'm sure there's also some some issues that you might encounter along the way sure maybe you can talk a bit about stuff you Yeah found. i i touched
1: yeah. on one before um so you know we we started a a project or a POC they wanted to figure out again is serverless right for us mm-hmm. they have a a bunch of well-defined business processes weren't sure how to move them into the cloud and it to me, it looked like serverless was a good candidate for it. Um, So, you know, we're plowing away, we're doing this for a couple of weeks. And I take a look up in the, you know, up in Azure, and I notice that we're already at like 52 functions, right? And we've only been doing this for a short period of time. Yeah. Um, So yeah, one of the things you're going to kind of notice off the bat is um, everything's a function now, which is good and bad. Because everything's a function, you now have a bunch of things that you are, you know, coding and have to manage. So Um, versioning of that and the right way to group them and maybe the right way to – we call them deployment units. So maybe there are 10 functions that always work together and that's kind of like a process or a workflow. It might make sense to bundle those up into like a project or a group. Think of it as a folder of functions. And you're not going to individually deploy those bits. You're going to deploy them as a unit. So I'd say sort of those things, thinking through how small – is too small. Like yeah, yeah. maybe you can write more than two lines of code in your function. Like <laughs> there has to be sort of a – you don't want 10,000 lines in a function, but you don't also want two lines. So it's kind of like what's the right size and what's the right grouping. Um, and then, yeah, versioning around that, right? So if you have an orchestration and or you have two orchestrations using the same function and then you go out and need new capabilities – do you create a new version of that function or do you call it something new? So those sorts of things, right? So, um, you know, as you use the tech, you get more familiar and that's some of the, I guess, experience yeah. that Sharp can kind of, you know, help out with is we've kind of been there, done that and can give some guidance around how, did, how you might want to construct your functions and start building them.
2: Right, yeah. yeah. It sounds like there's some parallels there too to the Kubernetes stuff where like, you know, setting up like proper logging and metrics and analytics and being able to like, you know, monitor this stuff properly on a real-time basis and govern it is kind of like an important important aspect of it. And that's yeah. that's the piece that like doesn't come out of the box. Like that's the stuff yeah. you really need to put some thought into.
1: Actually, yeah, I was just going to get into that as sort of the second gotcha is that all this stuff's out there running and you have this one function calling another function calling this. What happens when it breaks? Like how do you know where it broke, yeah. right? Yeah. So um you know, again, sticking with Azure, they, they've really thought about that. And I kind of think their logging and their metrics collection is kind of first, it's baked into this whole thing, okay. right? So when a new function is triggered, it's given this sort of like trace ID, if you will. Yep. And that trace ID can follow things throughout the workflow. So Funny. making debugging and finding issues a little bit easier. But again, yeah, you have to think about what are the metrics that we should be collecting to know how far we are into our workflows to know if they're being you know, used at all things like that. Yeah. You know? So I guess that's awesome.
0: a big thing that you and the team sort of working with you look at as well. Like things move pretty quickly in the cloud, yeah. right? Like, you know, the, the, the patterns and approaches we would have done two years ago. Right. And, you know, I don't know how long functions have been around for, but you know, probably less than two years. Yeah. Right. right. So, 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 you too, yeah. know, what we would have done six months ago, even to now, right. Our approach would be subtly different on it, right. Because of newer capabilities and stuff. And, and you keep, you know, you and colleague of yours Shane keep up Really up to date on what's going on with that, right? You know, in tight connections back to, to to Microsoft and other vendors, um, so that you can provide best practices and stuff like that to the clients. Yeah, um, because who knows what's going to be a year from now for the newer capabilities and things we might do.
1: Yeah, you want to stay on top of it, and then you know, depending on sort of your client's appetite for you know bleeding edge, you kind of. Yeah. Right. So like the, the new function runtime, uh, 2.0, it's not so new anymore. It's about nine months old. There were some glitches when it first came out. Yep. Right. And, but we were early adopters, like trying to figure out how did these activities all chain together and, you know, um, working through them, but now it's at a point where it's pretty rock solid. Right. But there, yeah, you're right. Like 3.0 is around the corner. So do we all jump to it because, oh, you can do dependency yeah. injection now, or you can do this or do that. Um, you know. That's what, so yeah, we'll kind of figure that side stuff out on the side and we'll figure out what's good, what's stable, you know, what works well today. And like you said, come up with some good patterns and best practices around it and then apply those to our our different gigs. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah.
2: Uh, Okay. Well, I think that's all the time we have today. Uh, But Dave, uh, it's great having you on the show. So thanks Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we've got a lot of uh, interesting new episodes uh, this year. And we've got, uh, well, we did the one on Kubernetes. Yeah. And we now just had serverless. Uh, I think the next one's going to be Azure DevOps and the CI CD pipeline and cool things are happening uh, there. And yeah, we'll have a lot more episodes to come this year. So uh, again, if any of you are listening and you're interested in learning more about ObjectSharp, um, you can hit us up on Twitter at ObjectSharp. Uh, you can also find us on LinkedIn. Uh, just search for Object Sharp and uh, you can find us on the web at ObjectSharp.com. And, uh, yeah, we hope, uh, we hope to see you on the next episode. Awesome. Nick, cool. thanks. Dave, thank you
0: very much for your insight and everything else. And to the audience, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to it and give us feedback.